You're listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. A few really interesting details to note in this passage. Firstly, the setting is a synagogue. It's uh, the same setting where Jesus gave his great gospel manifesto, I come to preach, uh, released to the captives and so on. And here he is again on the synagogue, on a Sabbath. This woman with uh, says she was crippled by a spirit for 18 years. And in verse 16, it says that uh, Jesus, after he's healed her, says that she was bound by Satan. And I think it's really, really interesting because often we talk about um, God's providence, we talk about his sovereignty over sin, we talk about sometimes having to accept our circumstances, but it's really, really important, isn't it? Jesus here attributes the author of evil for who he is. He doesn't say, you know, God did this. He says, she was bound by Satan. It was a spirit that kept her in this infirmity. And whether it was a spiritual sickness or a physical sickness, he's actually saying, look, this is the enemy's fault. And as often as we are called to accept what's happening to us and to put ourselves in, you know, trust, uh, God is in control and that sort of thing. Actually, it's really important that we call out evil for what it is. And when someone's sick or suffering, we don't just say, oh, well, you just, you know, you just have to accept that's God's will. Actually, it's okay to be angry about it. It's okay to say this isn't fair. It's okay to say the devil's behind this. You know, those are really important things, I think, because Jesus does it himself. By way of an aside, really. I think I love in this passage, um, Luke's efficiency in painting a scene. You know, he's how human of the synagogue ruler. I'm pretty sure I must have done something like this. Maybe you have too. He's angry with Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. It says that in the passage. And then he takes his anger out. He doesn't want to confront Jesus, probably because he's scared. <laughs> and so he shouts at all the people who are there to be healed. Isn't that funny? It's such a, I think it's such a human portrait. Uh, and Luke captures it so well with so few words. It's very human reaction, isn't it? Like, uh, I'm really angry with you, so I'm going to shout at you. <laughs> I love that. Also, I think it's just, again, very human. It's understandable. Here's a guy who he's, you know grown up with this interpretation of the law and what the Sabbath is. And every Saturday he's used to, you know, certain things happening a certain way. And here is something completely out of the ordinary. Um, just, you know, it, what is the word? Discombobulated, isn't he? He's just kind of like, oh, what's happening? <laughs> and as much as, you know, Jesus does call him a hypocrite, he's not innocent. But isn't it funny that actually we, again, just this human portrait, here's this guy who is just all out of sorts because something really unusual is happening. And he's responding with this kind of gut feeling, this isn't, this isn't right. He's actually angry, isn't he? Actually, again, just a warning there, I think, in passing. Often our feeling of being discomforted by, some, by something, being discombobulated or set in a pickle or however you want to say it. Actually, those aren't reliable guides to whether something is of the Lord or not. You know, it's really important, isn't it? This is, these aren't the main points of the text, but I just think it's in the midst of Luke's human uh, portrayal and observations, we see some of these um, some of these things emerging. So, aside from the details, there is a a major theme that Luke certainly picks out for us, and the Holy Spirit is inspired. And the theme is the theme of being unbound, untied, and set free. So you've got this woman who is bent double. Um, and she's, Jesus heals her with the words, you are set free. It's just, you know, it's not, these aren't neutral words, are they? For, he doesn't say you are healed. Or, he says you are set free. It's a very deliberate choice of words. 
Now then, when he's talking to the synagogue ruler, and he makes this argument from the lesser to the greater, he makes this uh, argument, says, if you would, un- you know, it's permitted by general consensus, by the teachings of the law, that on the Sabbath you can untie a donkey or an ox, then surely it's okay to untie a person <laughs> and set them free. So he actually uses the untying of the donkey and then the untying of the woman. And there's this lovely detail in there. You know, the synagogue ruler uses this particular word. He says, um, he says, there are six days for work. Actually, in the Greek, it says something like, there are six days when it's necessary for work. And Jesus replies, it was necessary that this woman should be set free. And then, of course, most, uh, verse 16, Jesus says this beautiful thing. She's bound for eight, bound for 18 long years. She's set, now set free from bondage. So there's this theme. Unbinding, untying, setting free. There's a, we'll be careful with numbers, but there may be something in this number 18. There's some references in the Old Testament. 18 years, uh, the Jewish people, as they, uh, under the judges, you can read about this in Judges 3, were under the oppression of a king called Eglon, and then Judges 10 again, after they disobeyed the Lord, they were under oppression for 18 years. And then they're setting free under the reign of King Josiah. In the 18th year of the reign of King Josiah, he's, he goes out, he sets a repair party into the temple and they rediscover the law and there's this setting free as they rediscover the law after 18 years. So maybe there's something in that number. Maybe not. I wouldn't, I'm not gonna stake this sermon on it, but. And then of course, there is this, this whole theme of, uh, which you find in Luke's gospel and the other gospels as well of, uh, the interpretation of the law, especially by the Pharisees, uh, it being very, very burdensome to the people. And this woman's bent double is almost like a parable, isn't it? Of the, the weight of the law misinterpreted, misapplied on the backs of the people. And Jesus says that to the Pharisees elsewhere. He says, you've, you've laden the people with burdens that they can't carry. You can't carry them. You're expecting other people to carry them. So this woman bent over is, a, you know, she's a, a physical portrait of, of the burden of Sabbath keeping. Uh, mis- misapplied. And then there's this setting free at the end. The people rejoice. There's this kind of, I don't know, I don't know whether they're like pleased because Jesus says this thing that, you know, puts the synagogue ruler straight. Anyway, it says at the end, people are rejoicing. This, uh, uh, this moment of tension is resolved into a moment of rejoicing. So, that's the theme behind the passage. Being unbound, being untied, being set free. I'm pretty sure you can see it. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? The Lord's here to speak to us today, isn't he? What would he speak to us about? (laughs) Being set free. So are you bound? Bent double? Weighed down? Tied up? Anxious about your circumstances or your health or your family or following God or any of those things? You think Jesus wants to set you free? Bound by illness? Cares or worries? He's here, isn't he? He's as here as he was in the synagogue on that Sabbath. By his spirit. Able, powerful, willing to set us free. Isn't that wonderful? You know, I just... Whether it's through a breakthrough, through something that God wants to do by his spirit today, if you can, can't he? 
as you're listening to God's word this morning, as you come to him in prayer, as you meet him at the communion table, as you pray with the people around you, as the spirit ministers to you, God can set us free in amazing and powerful and sudden ways, can't he? Who's experienced that in this life? In, in, in life? I have. It happens, doesn't it? He can do it again today. So, you know, what am I saying? Just set your expectation. Raise your faith. Jesus can meet with you today. He can lay hands on you as uh, really, as powerfully as he did for this woman and speak those words over your life. Whatever happens here today, he will draw you deeper into relationship with him. He will take you on a journey that is, is setting you free. And that is a wonderful, wonderful promise. Wonderful promise. Notice this especially behind that. The compassion of Jesus. The compassion of the Lord Jesus in this verse. I love the fact this woman doesn't put herself forward. She appears. He sees her. He calls her out. He doesn't even need any uh, initiative on this woman's part. Someone could have dragged you to church here today. You could be here against your your own volition. (laughs) It doesn't matter to God. He sees you. He is coming for you. He spoke to her. He laid hands on her. He uses his authority to, to release this binding by Satan. That's his intention for you. He's angry with what the devil has done in this woman's life. And he sets it right. And he's angry at what sin has done in your life and what the sins of other people have, have done in your life. And he will use his authority and his power on, on your behalf to set you free. And see, I just love how much feeling can one word uh, contain when Luke quotes the uh, the Lord Jesus in his own words in verse 18. What truth is contained in this one word, long, for 18 long years? That's the Lord's compassion, isn't it? This is not just a bare description. This is an entering into this woman's situation. He feels the burden that she's carrying. The Lord is not distant from our sufferings. He's not far away and unfeeling and dispassionate about the things that we struggle with, all the things that the people you love struggle with. He feels them. You know, I, I hope this doesn't sound too familiar, but I'm convinced that there'll be a day when the Lord Jesus speaks complete freedom over each one of us in the new heaven and new earth with new resurrection bodies, you know. And whether you'll say it or not, it will come across. The sentiment behind this word, long years. And there will be that sense of, I'm sorry it had to take so long. Necessary, yes. Perfectly planned in his providence, yes. Perfectly wise and loving towards us in everything he does, yes. But he feels feels with us. What comfort he will give us. And what a difference it makes, doesn't it? To know. I thought, as I was thinking about this, I just thought of those, remember those Chilean miners who were trapped underground? Uh, trapped for so many, uh, so many days with no hope of rescue. And uh, there was that moment when, do you remember, they, 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 if you know the story or maybe you followed it, the drill broke through into the, the shaft and they tied a little note and here we are. Um, I can't remember how many were there now. They were now. Yeah, something like that. And they wrote a little note saying, here we are. Uh, we're all safe or something like that. And, then, and, and this tiny little hole from the surface, like a, a mile above ground, made all the difference to their circumstance, didn't it? They weren't rescued yet. They still had to go through all that painstaking process of digging this tunnel to, to pull them out of this, this uh, mine. 
And yet they knew there was someone who was listening to what they, who was able to speak to them and communicate to them. And knowing that Jesus sympathizes with us, whether he sets us free right now or not, knowing that he feels our pain, knowing that he hears, makes all the difference, doesn't it? The difference between despair and promise of hope that rescue is coming. Jesus is here to set us free. So, knowing that, I think uh, I preface everything else that I want to share with you this morning with uh, this phrase, God's law is for our good. God's law is for our good. God's law, his commands, his will for our life, his moral law, his... uh, statutes, his principles, they are not to imprison us, but they are to set us free. Picture in your mind the uh, Hindu worshipper in, in, in India who has dedicated his life to feeding rats in a rat-infested temple. What reward does he get for that, apart from more rats? It's true, there is a place. And there are priests there who live there. Uh, full-time, and they serve the rats in the temple. Why? Because they think that they will get some reward somehow in the next life. Utterly disconnected from what they're doing, you know? I mean, it's nice to feed an animal or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> but there's no, there's no, you know, it's, but it's magic, basically. If I do this arbitrary thing, then I will get some arbitrary reward. You understand what I'm saying? If I do this random thing, I'll get this random reward. If I feed this snake some milk, the gods will bless me with a healthy family. You know, there's, there's this kind of quid pro quo. That is not how God's law works in our lives. And I, I feel one thing God would say to us this morning is just to remind us that. It, it, obeying his law, setting our, our face towards his law, loving his law, trying to obey his law, is not about doing something for God that is arbitrary and disconnected from reality so that he will reward us for obeying some random command. The synagogue ruler in this passage had somehow, whether it is his own personal fault or culturally or whatever, he had taken God's Sabbath command, this command to rest on the Sabbath, and turned it into something more like that quid pro pro quo, doing something for God that was hard and painful and arbitrary so that somehow, somewhere, you'll get a reward at the end of it. And that is not the way God's law works, is it? That's not the intention. Now, we know this, I hope. God would remind us. Because there is a tendency, isn't there, in us, just to turn against that and turn you know, to obedience to become this thing where we feel we have to earn what God wants. Take the Sabbath. It's designed to set us free. Jesus says it quite plainly. You know, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
And, you know, it's, it's there to remind us. It's there to remind us that God is in charge. It's there to remind us that it, everything we do is for God's worship. It's there to remind us that God loves to bless us. It's there to remind us that we're not in control. It's there to set limits on our work life and our, you know, our patterns of behavior. It's there so that in the, the duties that God has in His grace and His mercy, uh, delegated to us don't consume us and take over our whole lives. It's there for all these good reasons. It sets us free. That's why God commands us to take a day of rest, isn't it? And it's been, it could be turned upside down into this dutiful thing. And it, what's true of, of the Sabbath command, as briefly as we've talked about it, is true of all of God's law. Every one of his commands. The whole universe is saturated, woven through with God's way of doing things. A way of living that's it's not disconnected. It's not, if you do this, God will reward you. It's good in and of itself. It brings us, when we obey it, deep delight and freedom. So in that great psalm, uh, Psalm 119, where the law is discussed so much, just a few quotes, a psalmist says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Do you rejoice in God's law as one rejoices in great riches? Have a sense of discovery, a sense of, yes, I've found something else. <laughs> something else precious. It says, the same psalm says this, direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. And again, I will walk in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. So God's law, his commands, they're not a burden, they're a promise. So that's a, that's a message we can share with People who aren't Christians, it's a message we can share with people who don't know the Lord. That Actually, God invites us into this Christian life. It is for a relationship with him. But he wants to set us free by showing us how to live. By unburdening us from the things that imprison us. And any time someone uh, talks to you about your faith and says, you know, do you have to follow all these laws? It's so important, isn't it? That, yes, we, there are things that Christians can, should do and there's things that we mustn't do. But in communicating those things... There has to be this sense that God wants to set us free. We have to have confidence in that when we share the gospel with people. That we're inviting people into a way of life that gives them freedom. And of course, the great promise of the gospel is it's not a system of behavior. But actually that God invites us in and through the blood of Christ and through our union with Christ, our introduction to the Father and into the the, the family, as it were, of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to write those laws on our heart. So it's not even a work that we have to take up like some burden, like becoming good people. But it's just something we have to assent to. And say yes to, and God will set us free. So it's something about the gospel, but there's also something in our own lives. I've hinted at already. There is this weird phenomenon that happens in us. I've observed it sometimes in teaching, uh, you know, Bible studies or whatever, especially with younger people. That if you talk one-to-one with somebody, they'll give you all their attention. You can talk about an interesting subject. You can have a great discussion, that sort of thing. But put the same person in the classroom context, and you can have exactly the same conversation, and they'll just start chatting to the person next to you. And completely, there's something about being in a classroom, isn't there, that has this barrier that like takes that relationship away and makes it kind of like weird. Does that make sense? You ever been on the receiving end of that? Yeah, it does happen sometimes when I'm preaching too. There's something just about the pulpit or something, isn't it? It's just, there's something about that, being passive, a passive... Anyway, you know, there's a tendency in us when it comes to God's law 
to turn it into something that we just kind of, you know, to push away from it, to be reluctant to hear it, to find it to be a burden. And I think God would say to us this morning that he wants to remind us that his laws, his statutes, his commands are to be a delight for us. Not something that we learn about unwillingly or restlessly, but something that, like the psalmist, we take deep delight in, that we love so much that actually we love to think about, why does God command me this? Why does he say do this or not do that? Why is the Bible strong about this subject? And he wants us to think and understand and study and, and dwell in, in that and take pleasure in it, to have a desire for it and to love it in veto. So there's that question, I suppose, a question for me and for you, hangs over this whole thing really, is do you recognise that symptom? And how is your understanding of God's commands? How is that weighing in your life? How is it affecting you? How is it affecting you? Are you running towards him and what he says? Are you embracing uh, his statutes, his decrees? Are you looking at his word? Are you spending time on it? Or is it just there in the background, something you'd rather not think about too much? There are a few kind of, I was going to call them symptoms, but they're also kind of warnings as well. Just things that God would have us look out for in our lives or be aware of, lest they come into our lives, about our relationship with his commands. First one is this. Is there some part of your life where you tolerate sin, no matter how small? (laughs) So the size is a thing. Like, do you tolerate sin, no matter how small? And the word tolerate is important for you to notice. I'm not asking, the Lord is not asking you this morning because he knows full well, is there some area of your life where you struggle with sin? The answer is yes. We all know that. And we'll talk about that another week. And he's not particularly asking you to think about that right now. The question is, is there some area of your life where you tolerate it? Where you basically stop the fight? Where you've said, it doesn't matter too much if I give in in this particular way. In your relationships, in the way you treat other people. Negatively or positively. Is there in your attitude towards things or to, you know, possessions? Is there some part of your life where you decided, you know, it's not worth the fight? I'm not going to die on that hill. And you just tolerate sin. These small spaces are so significant. Because they're the places where no one's looking. They're the places where people are unlikely to see. But there's the place where our true attitude towards God's law is revealed. Do we actually trust? Not only that God wants the best for us, but like he delights to give us his law, to write it on our hearts. He wants to give us every last drop of it so that we're free, so that we learn to delight in him, so that we're able to love like him and to know his love. So is there some part of your life where your question is, not am I struggling, but how much can I get away with before anyone notices? 
what you read or watch or what you do when no one's looking or something at work or church or <laughs> whatever? Is there some little bit of you that, you know, it's like if there's light and dark and light is being near the Lord and darkness is being far away from the Lord, you're just kind of in the twilight, hoping that nobody notices you, <laughs> gradually creeping further away. Those are the things to be careful of. And God would challenge us, call us out on it right now and say, you know, come to the light, trust me. Trust my rich blessings. Secondly then, is there some part of your relationship with God that's transactional? Where you do something expecting a specific reward. I can think of a dozen in my own life. Just habitually, you know, you do something and it's, I'm not doing it for the right reasons, I'm doing it because somewhere down the road I expect God to pay me back. Is there something in your life like that? Prayer? That's a common one, isn't it? Church? That's a common one, isn't it? Serving? All sorts of religious stuff? You know, I remember seeing once uh, this documentary it was about world religions and there was this lady on a pilgrimage to somewhere in Tibet and um, she, she was, she'd taken her child with her, and they, they journeyed, I can't remember how far it was, but it was hundreds and hundreds of miles. And she would take one step forward, and then she would prostrate herself on the ground, touch the ground with her head, get up, take another step, same again, and again, and again, for hundreds of miles. I mean, she'd gone through some suffering, I think, one of her, her other child was sick or something like that. And she felt that if she did this thing, at the end of it all, God, I mean, she's a Buddhist, so I don't even know what that means, but you know, God or whoever would somehow heal her child in reward for this massive act of sacrifice. You know, that's not it, is it? Doing this so that God rewards us. You know, there's, there's two problems with that, with that approach. Now, obviously, none of us is doing that extreme stuff. But... Is there some part where we're, we're doing something for God to reward us? It's more subtle than that, isn't it? But there, there are two problems with that. Firstly, it makes it out that God's law is arbitrary, but we, we're actually ignoring the reward that comes when we obey God. You know, like the Sabbath. You don't obey the Sabbath so that God will reward us. The obedience of the Sabbath is part of, of the reward, isn't it? You know, we don't serve people because at the end of it, God will say, thank you for serving that person. Here's some gold or whatever. The service of, of, of people, especially those who are unable to reward you, is the reward. That's what Jesus is really clear about. It's intrinsic. It's built in. But there's another problem, a deeper problem, a relational problem, in that relationships don't work like that. You know, I, I probably use this example too much, but it's just the one that springs to mind. It's tea making. <laughs> tea making from my spouse. <laughs> Because when we first got married, I hope this isn't too personal. I mean, it's making a big point. <laughs> when we first got married, Abby's, one of Abby's unspoken expectations that she got from her family was that the husband would make unlimited amounts of tea for the wife. <laughs> and I remember observing this in her family and her dad. I hope they don't listen to this recording. 
uh, <laughs> observing this in her dad and thinking, oh, you know, this is what a waste of time. Like, he spends half his day making tea. This is ridiculous. I'll never do that. <laughs> well, I can tell you after 20 years of marriage, <laughs> I'm pretty much exactly like that. <laughs> but the, the thing that I learned that I'd missed, and, oh, and well, there's a, there was an intermediate stage. There was a stage of, you know, I gradually came to realize that if I didn't make Abby tea, my life would probably be a lot worse. <laughs> and so I did it, but I expected some reward back. You know, some sense of, you know, whatever. I expected, you know, she would, she would do something that I needed to be done. No, that didn't happen either. Well, no, not that it didn't happen, but it didn't happen as a reward, you know. But then, as I progressed, I, this weird thing started happening. That I started doing it because it made her happy. That actually my happiness was bound up in just making her happy. Isn't that weird? Is that weird? I don't know if it is. That's how relationships work, isn't it? I began to find my delight in her delight. Not any expectation at all. And my delight was in her freedom not to have to do anything. You know, that's what a relationship is, isn't it? That's how it works. How weird it is that we find that so hard to apply to our relationship with God. Lord, I want to obey you. Because it delights your heart. And because not because you have to reward me or give me some specific thing in return. But because just because I love you. And because I know that because it's a relationship and you're trustworthy and faithful and you know we're we're so close that of course there'll be blessing in that. Of course you'll do things for me too. But not this for that. How limited and <laughs> impoverished that is compared to a real relationship. So God would challenge us this morning, and sorry for the length of the illustration, but I hope it's useful. I hope it, even though it's very day-to-day, it's making this bigger point. Are there areas in our life where we've lost that sense of doing things for God just to delight Him? And we're doing it instead because we're expecting the equal amount back somehow. God wants us to have the freedom and the richness and the abundance of relationship with him. Next then, does your understanding of God's law make you mistreat people? I was watching a a film uh, the other day and it was uh, about this lady who's uh, working in a shop in Ireland and uh, she had a part-time job, and she worked there on a Sunday. And the the person who the shopkeeper was a miserable old woman who had the habit of berating the customers over their choices. It's quite a funny movie, anyway. But um, and this customer comes in, and she asks for shoe polish on a Sunday. <laughs> and the woman says, "Why are you asking for shoe polish on a Sunday? That's hardly a thing to buy on a Sabbath, is it?" And she utterly humiliates this woman. She goes through the long list of things you can buy on the Sabbath in Ireland in the 1920s, whenever it was. Uh, you can buy bacon and eggs because those are things you can't get any other day. Because you can buy this or that or that. But shoe polish, and a, this this shop is full of people, and she's just giving her this dressing down, utterly humiliating her. And then, last thing, she looks at her shoes and says, "It looks like you needed it yesterday, anyway." <laughs> Awful. I mean, it's like film. 
The, the purpose of the command about the Sabbath is to make people happy. <laughs> She's so annoyed that this person is breaking the Sabbath that she makes her miserable. <laughs> How weirdly contradictory, isn't it? How quickly that, that attitude arises in my heart. I'm upset with someone because I see sin in their life. And really, I should be upset for them. I should be upset on their behalf. I should be like Jesus. This person is bound. I mean, if I'm right, I mean, most of the time I'm wrong because I'm being judgmental and flawed. But, you know, if I judge something right, I should be angry about the sin. I should be angry on their behalf. But how quickly that turns into anger towards the person. Isn't that weird? Do you ever do that? It's just me. Just me. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? It's what a kind of weird kind of perversion of God's law. Making someone miserable because they're not following God's law about making them happy. We see this in the synagogue ruler. We see it in our own hearts when we're disturbed by someone's ignorance. How could they, how could they not realise that would happen? Or there's a lack of solidarity. Then, you know, some parts of our obedience with God require us all to pull together, don't they? You know? And it's kind of like, oh, you know, I just wish that everyone was on board. I'm so cross because they didn't turn up or, you know, they didn't pull their weight. Or someone's failure to realize the consequences of their actions or someone's weakness. We're angry with them and it, it, and we turn that into, you know, something that undermines the command itself. That God wants people to be free and to be happy. And we actually contradict glories. You know, the picture that comes to mind is a, like a parent smacking a child saying, you shall not hit people. <laughs> it is really bad. <laughs> My parents didn't do that. Sorry. <laughs> but you, you understand the point, right? You're undermining the command by the very rebuke you give. You know, and there is something that can arise so quickly in our hearts where we can be judgmental of other Christians in a way that embitters us towards them. It's completely disproportionate to the sin that's in their lives, whether deliberate or otherwise. Paul calls it out in, in Romans 14. There's this, some disturbance about the types of food that people are eating in the church in Rome. And he ends up saying to them, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Your food you know, yes, it's important to you or whatever. So, you know, whatever it, he doesn't even make a, a comment about who's right or wrong. But he's saying how absurd to destroy someone, someone made in God's image, precious and precious to the Lord and saved by his grace and all those things. How absurd to destroy them for the sake of food. You can get your priorities sorted. We can act in such a way as to cut off relationships, even to turn people away from church altogether. Turn people away from Faith temporarily or even for their whole life, the Lord knows their heart. But our anger about sin and our expression of it, if it's not gentle and loving, if it doesn't come with that respect for the person, can be deeply damaging. Despite the fact that we've convinced ourselves we're on God's side. And so the Lord says to us, you know, deal gently with one another. But most will see the value of the other person. I, I think... That's true of our relationships in church, isn't it? So important. It's so important to the world around us as well, for people who don't know Jesus. You know, there is a lot of sin and injustice and brokenness in the world for us to be angry about, isn't there? Satan is bound, people, countries even. 
It's so easy for us either to give the impression or just to give in to that anger such that we destroy the work of God and stop people coming to him. James has that wonderful rebuke. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, if there are things that are not right in the world, if there's stuff that makes your blood boil, if there are people that their actions, or the things they stand for, turn your stomach, or whatever it is, take, you know, we talked about this last week, that anger isn't necessarily bad, but don't, don't use it to destroy people, to speak harshly or to tear down people. Take it and harness it towards justice. Harness it towards prayer. Harness it towards doing things that are hard. Harness it towards personal interaction, towards sacrifice, towards understanding hard thinking about difficult subjects instead of lazy thinking. Harness it to to solve problems. But don't tear people down. So some things for us to look out for. Some warnings or Maybe even some things God's dealing with in us at the moment. It's good to zoom out to and to see the big picture. The world is in bondage, isn't it? Bound. The world will be untied one day. called to work, we've been thrown into slavery by a terrible enemy for long, long years. The world and its environs and all its people bent double, the image of God crushed and broken and perverted. Long years. But there will be an unbinding. That's the picture that surrounds all this, isn't it? That's the big picture. We don't know how exactly. We don't know when exactly. Earth and humanity will be renewed and set free. But we know that this world is passing away. And that God is preparing a new home. Someone writes this. In this new earth, righteousness is to make its home and happiness will satisfy and more than satisfy all the yearnings for peace that arise in our hearts. On that day when death is conquered, the sons of God will be raised up in Christ. What was sown as something weak and perishable will be clothed in incorruption. Love and the fruits of love will remain, and the whole of creation made by God for man will be set free from the frustration that enslaves it. Love and the fruits of love will remain. That's the promise. No unseen deed. No prayer that anyone else hasn't heard, only God heard. No unthanked task. No hidden suffering, no pointless thing that seems pointless that God has taken you through. No action or thought or word done in love, received in faith, will go to waste. Those long years will be repaid. All that's meaningless will be made meaningful. All 
all the good fruits of our cooperation with the Spirit will be found again in the world to come, but purified of all stain, resplendent and transfigured, when Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father, when Christ says to you and me and the whole creation, you are set free. Amen. Let's pray.